Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Glad to be back in the saddle here. Uh, 2024, looking forward to a great year as well. I want to, first of all, just mention that I was so blessed uh, last two Sundays by Matt Spurgeon, his message there a couple weeks ago, and then last week, Milt Matchek, a wonderful message about our Savior. So, so appreciate both of those. So special for me to be able to sit and take that in and uh, and get convicted and all of those things. So, um, here's what's upcoming real quick also before I dive in here. Two weeks from now, uh, two Sundays from now, I will I plan on starting a series on the Song of Solomon. Lord willing, we'll finish Ecclesiastes today, and then two weeks from now, we'll start on Song of Solomon. Never taught that book before, so pray for me. And, uh, but it'll be, I think it'll be helpful for all of us. And uh, next week, I'll, my wife and I will be gone for a pastor's retreat. I, I don't think I've been gone on a Sunday for like three or four years. And so, um, so this will be rare for us, but I'm looking forward to our little retreat that we're going to do. But uh, you'll get a chance to hear from Jason Turcott next week, Lord willing. And he'll be teaching about how to be a better Christian in the end times. And so you have a great weeks ahead. Um, <clears throat> As, as we come to the final chapter of Ecclesiastes here, Ecclesiastes 12, first of all, I want to just say I hope it has been a helpful and eye-opening journey for everybody as we've gone through this amazing book of the Bible. It is absolutely profound and deep and helpful for all of us. But interestingly, the Lord knew all, putting all of this together, but he has used it, this book of the Bible, in our life, uh, my wife and I personally, about a month and a half ago or two months maybe, my wife had her uh, annual mammogram, and at, after that first mammogram, they thought they saw something suspicious, and they said, you need to come back for another test. And so, problem was, it was going to take a week to get back in there, and so with a, for a week, we were just kind of living with a weight on our shoulders, yeah. not knowing what was going to happen. It was the first time uh, for her to have something like that. And I know many of you women have probably gone through something like that, but as I mentioned, it's a, it was a first for us. So there's a week of battling fear and trying not to think the worst and just asking the Lord to give us his peace as we tried to sleep and, and, uh, and uh, just carry on in life. And then the next test, they said it's still not conclusive. We don't know. You need to come back for a third test. And so another week of waiting. And during all of this, I am teaching the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're talking about how pain is uh, a teacher in our life. And remember, we were talking about how short our life is. And um, we never know what could happen on a day-to-day basis. And all the while, it was extremely real in my mind, in my heart, as I was teaching that. So, as I, as I think back, those, those days, I realize how much Ecclesiastes was actually working in my mind, and God was just using that so powerfully, and he was using his word in our life. Third test, by the way, we went back, and they said, you're clear. There's oh, nothing there, God. so please praise the Lord, yeah. and uh, if there was something there that they initially were suspicious of, 
then God removed it, <laughs> or there was nothing to begin with. But either way, we both came away with just such a, an awareness of how precious our short life is, and to appreciate the days that we have on this earth, the hours that we have left. Life is a temporary gift from God. That is one of Solomon's big and clear lessons in the book of Ecclesiastes. He has also made it clear that there's a lot of vanity under the sun as well. This book is all about a man, Solomon, who tried everything he knows to, uh, under the sun to find meaning. Can I find meaning only under the sun? If I don't look above it, I just try to find it here. And he said, everything I searched for came up empty. Pleasure, education, riches, no matter what it was, it always en uh, ended up with meaninglessness and emptiness and vanity. The words he used over and over again were vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So if you live life under the, with this under the sun perspective, it's just like grasping air. It's an endless treadmill, working hard, but getting nowhere. And just like steam, you know, that word vanity really just means air or breath or steam. It's as soon as it comes, as soon as life comes, it goes. And that's really what that word means, air. In fact, I heard about a play by a man named Samuel Beckett. This whole play lasts 35 seconds. <laughs> the curtain opens. There's a pile of garbage on the stage and it's illuminated by one single light. The light dims, it brightens just a little bit, and then goes completely out. There are no words in this drama, there's no actors in this drama, only a soundtrack with a human cry, followed by an in inhaled breath, and then an exhaled breath, and another cry. And that's it. And that's how life feels for people who live with an under-the-sun perspective. It's quick, it's really not much, it's vain, and it's over. What, where have I gone? What have I done? As Derek Kidner said, he said, nothing in our search has led us home. Nothing that we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. See, we must go above the sun to find meaning. And when we do, then we see that life is just a temporary assignment. This life down here is a temporary assignment. It is a gift. It is a gift to you from God to use it as he would have you use it. And we only find fulfillment if we do it his way. It's the only way to actually ever get to that place of meaning and fulfillment. And that's what this final chapter is really all, all about. The preacher gives his grand finale here. And, the, and number one, we're going to see in these next few verses is that the clock is ticking, so remember your creator. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, a powerful chapter here. Let's, let's do this. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon says, before you get too old and you lose the pleasures of life, remember your creator. In other words, the key to making life the most meaningful it can be is to remember your creator in the days of your youth. Keep your focus above the sun. It really just means to keep God in mind. Keep him at the forefront of your mind. Make him and his ways the priority of your life, the center of your life. And notice, if, if God is the creator, 
I love that he uses that word, remember your creator. If God is the creator, then it implies that we are created. Therefore, if you want meaning in life as a created being, then follow the manufacturer's guidelines. Life is so much better if you live according to the creator's design. (laughs) Bono, the musician, wrote something very interesting about Ecclesiastes. Look, Here's what he said. He said, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive, why he was created. He tries knowledge, he tries wealth, he tries experience, he tries everything. You hurry to the end of the book to find out why, and it says, remember your creator. In a way, it's such a letdown, yet it isn't. And it certainly is not a letdown, because this is the way to have the greatest life possible. Stick to God's plan. Remember your creator. Just keep him in mind. Have him the center of your entire life. Have everything revolve around God. And if if you'll do that, then you will have a fulfilled and a meaningful life. Uh, The purpose, if you think about it, the purpose for our existence is the pleasure of God. Revelation chapter four, verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created, you were created, for the pleasure of God. Just because God wanted to and he wanted to create you, you're for him. You were made, every person in the world was made for him. Whether they know it or not, they were. We're not here because we chose to be here. We're here for God's purposes. So we can only find fulfillment then if we keep in line with that. And that's really what Ecclesiastes chapter 12.1 is saying. Get with that program as early in life as you possibly can. Remember thy creator in the days of your youth. As early as you possibly can, begin to make that your entire life. Have God the center of everything. Your young years are short, and don't waste them on meaningless things. Remember your creator now, because the evil or the difficult days are coming when you will be physically limited on what you can do for your creator. And Solomon now is gonna prove that point with an epic description of old age, okay? In fact, in all of literature, in the entire world, you will not find a more poetic portrayal of old age than we're about to read right now. It is uh, real, (laughs) and it is poetic and beautiful at the same time. Verse two, while the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. So he says, remember your creator before these dark days come. This speaks of things getting worse, in your life and in your body, uh, not better. See, it says light is darkened and clouds keep coming in after the rain. You get no break, meaning the hardships start to stack up one right after another, physically and relationally and all the things in your life as you get older. It just gets tougher and tougher. I mean, you just listen to a group of old timers sitting around talking and you're gonna hear a lot about doctor's visits and physical ailments and all that kind of stuff. And it starts with people my age, us 40-somethings. We're already talking about, hey, I'm not, as, I'm not doing so good as I used to do. They don't work like they used to work. Verse three, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened. Very poetic language here. The keepers of the house shall tremble. It's talking about our arms and hands begin to shake as you get older. Strong men shall bow themselves. Strong men are talking about their legs. Our legs are weakened. Grinders cease because they are few. I think we can figure that out. The teeth begin to disappear. 
Uh, those that look out the window be darkened. Our eyes are dimmed. Or we lose, uh, lose our ability to see. Verse four, and the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. This means our ears are no longer able to hear the vibrant hustle and bustle of life when the door is open and you're used to hearing all these kinds of things. All of a sudden, you can't hear like you used to be able to hear. But then paradoxically, look what it says. Uh, he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, meaning you sleep so lightly in your old age that the slightest sound might cause you to wake up and you're kind of just laying in bed. You know, the, the donut shops uh, early in the morning are full of who? The old retired guys, <laughs> but because they can't sleep real long, you know? I mean, they get up early, just get used to that, and, and pretty soon you, you lose that ability to sleep. Daughters of the music, it says, shall be brought low, meaning your vocal cords lose their strength. Verse 5, also when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fears shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail. Because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Of being afraid of that which is high, and fears be in the way. You know, when we get older, you get, we start to get fearful of all kinds of things, especially as it says, falling. And, and then it says, the almond blossoms, or excuse me, the almond tree shall flourish. Our hair turns white like almond blossoms. Uh, some of us are more like an almond tree in the fall. <laughs> when they do, anyway, the grasshopper shall be a burden. And no more bounce in our step. We walk like we're carrying a heavy load. Desire shall fail. Now, the Hebrew word translated desire here is interesting. It's caperberry. Some of you might have a translation that says that. And the word, the word for desire there is, or the word for caperberry is derived from the word desire. So it's really the same thing. But caper berries back then in the day were the Viagra of the day. <laughs> so I think you can guess what kind of desire we're talking about here, okay? Verse 6, or, or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel be broken at the cistern. Now there are two word pictures here. The first seems to be referring to a golden lamp that they might have hanging in their uh, in their home, and it's suspended by a silver chain. The, the chain in, in this picture has snapped, and the bowl has fallen to the ground, is now broken. It's a picture of death. The light of life has gone out. One day, the silver, the silver cord is going to break, and life will be done. The pitcher broken at the fountain, or the wheel at the, uh, broken at the cistern, it's a picture of a well, and the wheel has broken, and so the pitcher has just flown down to the bottom and shatters. No more life. Both are a picture of the end of our time here, death, once it comes. That's it. Verse 7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Notice Solomon here breaks the his typical writing, and he goes above the sun here. Our bodies return to the dust, but a spirit goes to God. Your temporary assignment here on earth is done. You're now home. For the believer, of course, we know as we read through the entire Bible, we put all the things together about what death is going to be like and what happens after our death. We know that we're going to be absent from the body, basically as it says here, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. I love that phrase, present with the Lord, right there, present. 
For the unbeliever, it means that they will stand before God and they will be before God in a different way. They will stand before God in a, in a way for judgment. But the main point here in Ecclesiastes that Solomon is helping us realize is that everyone's day is coming. That day will happen. Your time here will be done. And verse 8, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Life was a mere breath. When you look back, you'll think life was just a, just a breath. It was, it was a vapor. You think you're going to live a long time, and then all of a sudden it's over. The main point here is life is shorter than we think, so don't waste it. This is what Solomon is really trying to help us see. And that's why then the preacher, who is Solomon here, spent much effort finding and giving wisdom that would help people live a life of wisdom while they still have this gift of life that they have. And so that's number two here. The truth is available, so live in the word. Look what he says now in verse nine. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, this is Solomon, the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought it out and set in order many proverbs. You want to know how to live the wisest possible life in the years that you have left and the time you have left here? Then go to the Proverbs and go to Ecclesiastes as is written by the preacher who was wise. You want to do some practical help, a way to live in wisdom? You know, this verse right here is a reminder that the words written in these books, Proverbs uh, especially, and Ecclesiastes, those Proverbs there are not just willy-nilly thrown together. Solomon, it says, gave good heed. He poured himself into searching out the best wisdom there is to get. He also organized them, it says here, he set them in order. He organized them in a cohesive order so we could have the most prolific collection of wise sayings known to man. And by the way, what we have in the wisdom books from Solomon are not only wise, but they are in a class all their own in, in, in all of literature. There's more that he did. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. Now that word, Hebrew word for acceptable means delightful. And I love this. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. See, not only are the words of Solomon words of truth, settled truth, but they are also delightful, they're beautiful words. You see, Solomon put in work. He made great effort to use language that would be beautiful to the ears. His, his work is poetic, it is memorable, it is clever. And as you read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, you get it. Ah, this is beautiful language, but it's also truth, it's powerful. It's hard-hitting, and there's just that ring of truth in my heart. See, Solomon takes real-life truth and then adorns it with this delightful language. The famous American writer Tom Wolfe, he described Ecclesiastes as the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. The greatest single piece of writing I have known, he says. I mean, this is the book, Ecclesiastes, that given us phrases like, the sun also rises, and to everything there is a season, or eternity in the hearts of men. Cast your bread on the waters. The almond tree blossoms, and man does not know his time. But then there are all, 
I was thinking of some of the beautiful language in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Or, you know this one, pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. That is beautiful language and a powerful truth. He could have just said, say nice words to each other. You know, but, but, the, but this, makes, man, this makes it so much better and memorable and sticks. And there's more, you know. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. He could have just said, don't be lazy. But he made it beautiful. Or adultery is like an ox going to the slaughter. <laughs> oh, what, man, what descriptive language. You can't find better language in all of the world. That in itself is a lesson for all of us. Think about it, in our homes, in your job, learn to say truth in a creative and beautiful way. It takes work, but it's worth it. And it's powerful and it helps everybody around you. One person I've noticed recently that does a decent job at this, at least from what I've heard, I don't know everything, but is the new house speaker, Mike Johnson, I gotta say, as a believer in the spotlight and among so many enemies who would love to just devour that man, he seems to be doing such an eloquent job of speaking and being very careful and wise with his words. And I appreciate people like that, and we need people like that in the halls of uh, polit- uh, politics. But in Solomon's case, there is one more element that makes his words far more powerful and even supernatural. And that is because those words actually come directly from God. Verse 11, look at this. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. These Proverbs of Solomon, he says, this Proverbs that I've given are like goads. A goad is a long stick with a sharp point on the end and it was used to keep the ox, oxen moving and not veering off the road. He's saying words of wisdoms, wisdom are like that. They poke us and they prod us and they keep us on the right path and not going left or right. And by reading God's words uh, and, and words of wisdom in God's word, it's like it just keeps us on the straight and narrow. But they're also like nails fastened by the masters of assemblies. It's like a masterful speaker. It's like a person who could stand up and hold your attention and then take a truth and just stick it like a nail and it fastens right into your heart. But then notice that this, this extremely important phrase at the end of this verse, it says, which are given from one shepherd. Who is the one shepherd he's talking about that gave all this wisdom? Well, it's not Solomon because we keep seeing Solomon being brought called the preacher. It's not him. Who is it? This is none other than God himself. God is called the shepherd in in several places in the Old Testament, uh, the most famous one being Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 11 is an important Old Testament verse about the doctrine of inspiration. In the New Testament, we see verses about uh, God giving, giving man the Bible. God, his word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning that God literally breathed out these words to men, and they wrote them down. Peter, the apostle, said, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Spirit that was working. God used man's personality, 
God used man's gifting. God used man's research. God used man's abilities. But he is the one, but the words are still handed down from one shepherd. God superintended their writing and to keep them from error. And this means that the words that we see written here, that we read, are more than just mere wisdom. They are from God himself. They actually come from heaven. As one Bible college professor wrote, listen to this. The preacher's words, he's talking about Ecclesiastes here, the preacher's words are not merely the musings of some skeptical philosopher. They are part of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant revelation of Almighty God. Therefore, it is not enough merely to admire their artistry and respect their integrity. We must also submit to their authority. As the shepherd of our souls, God uses this book as he uses everything written in the Bible to prod us into spiritual action. Amen and amen. That's what this, this word is, and throughout the entire Bible, it is inspired by God himself, and it comes from one shepherd. Verse 12, and further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. When we follow the shepherd's words, we are admonished. And that word in Hebrew means enlightened. The light bulb turns on when you begin to read the scriptures. God's word is like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It gives us the light that we need to know what to do on a day-to-day basis and how to think even and uh, decisions to make in our life and our family and every other way. The wisest people in the world are not the most intellectual. They are those who are following the light of God's word. But there's a lot of competition to the word of God out there, a lot. And even back then, Solomon says there are a lot of people writing books. In fact, he said it's in, there's an endless amount. The making of many books, there is no end. And if you keep studying and going after and reading as many, you know, I just got to find the truth and I'm going to read all of these books, uh, I, it, will just, it will just be an endless search. And you can keep studying your whole existence and try to answer the big questions of life. But if you do that, know this, you'll get, here's what you'll end up with at the end of that road. If I'm just going to keep going, reading all these books, trying to figure out life, here's what you'll get. As it says here, weariness of the flesh. That's all you'll get. <laughs> you really won't be that much the wiser. You've gained nothing except sleepiness. Why? Because every question a philosopher asks on these big questions leads to 100 more questions. It's endless. I mean, this, this is human philosophy. It's never-ending. Think about it. Just choosing which philosopher to follow would lead to more questions. Imagine if you weren't following the Bible for a minute, okay? And you said, hmm, which philosopher, which life philosophy will I follow? Uh, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Marx, Russell, Nietzsche, Hume, hmm, which one will I go with? Well, they all go in different directions, and so you need to answer then why you're choosing that particular one. And where does he get his information from? And if his opinion just comes from within himself, then why aren't all the others just as valid? That's just the beginning of questions I would have 
if you go start going down one road, not to mention then to start reading their philosophies and it would just lead to a hundred more questions. If we go down the road of human books and knowledge, there will be no end. All that study will just be a weariness of the flesh. But people of the book are different. We have God's word on the biggest topics of life. We have life's biggest questions already settled in our mind. Think about it. Where did the earth come from? God told us that. Why are we here? God told us that. Why do we feel a sense of morality, right and wrong? We know because God knows. Where does evil come from? Why is there male and female? Where where does love come from? How do I have peace in my heart? What will happen to me after I die? All these questions are already settled for us. I mean, we're already past that. We have it right here in the word of God. We're not still on a search for those things. You know, I just saw one article this week or last week in in a very... Uh, in a secular scientific magazine, they're trying to answer the question of when humans began wearing clothes. I was like, okay. They they said the earliest clothing they've discovered in archaeology dug up is, you guessed it, about 5,000 years ago. We already knew that. And and even in the Bible tells us why people wear clothes. Uh, People of the book have answers. We have answers. Uh, But honestly, many people are not actually asking questions to get answers. They want an excuse not to believe. Listen to this. It's in the novel, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And he describes a man who is from the suburbs of hell, he says, who has spent his whole life seeking the truth. So he says, the man wanders somewhere near the borders of heaven and he gets a gracious invitation of God to, to enter. But the spirit warns this man. He says this, quote, I can promise you no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. So the man is not ready to let go of his quest, and so he wants to study some more before he accepts someone else's conclusions. So he says, well, we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Listen, God's Spirit says then to the man, once you were a child, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Yet sadly, the man refuses, and he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. The conversation suddenly ends in the book when the man remembers that he has an appointment. He makes his apologies and hurries off to a discussion group in hell. See, everybody has to come to the place where they accept the answers that God has given. Here are the answers. You can choose to reject them, or you can choose to accept them. But thankfully, the search ends here. The search ends here. These words come down from one shepherd. And speaking of the end, here is the powerful ending of Ecclesiastes now. From the man who looked everywhere for fulfillment. And this is number three, the conclusion is uncomplicated. Fear and obey God. Verse 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. 
Verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Looking back at that verse 13 there, on the most epic search ever for meaning done by a single human being, here is what he says at the end of that search. Nobody has had as much power as wealth or the opportunity to do what Solomon did and he went, he went after every angle you possibly could under the sun and here was his end conclusion, just fear God and keep his commandments. Everything in life should just revolve around that. We are not to be Christian in name only. This is a 24-7 thing that we are doing here. God doesn't make things complicated. We, ha- we need to have the fear of God, which is a holy awareness of the presence of God at all times. And then just keep his commandments. Just do what his word says. If you want a life of fulfillment and meaning, there it is. That's how you'll find it. Trust the process. Notice the word, though, I want to mention, notice the word duty in that word. If you have, a, if you op- have your Bible open, it's italicized in the King James Version, meaning it was added. So really, it could just say it's the whole of man. The whole of man. In other words, the whole purpose and fulfillment of man is found in fearing God and keeping God's commandments. You will never find a better life. There might be easier roads at times for a while, but it's not a better life. And verse 14 then is what gives weight to that whole verse 13 and the purpose of man. And it says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Notice that the message of Ecclesiastes is not nothing matters but it actually is everything matters. Everything matters. Everything is going to be brought before God. And so everything matters. Arthur Miller wrote, if there is no God, then there is no judge. If there is no judge, then there will be no final judgment. If there is no final judgment, then there is no ultimate meaning to life and nothing matters. I mean, think about that. If there is no God, nothing matters. My life doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. Morality doesn't matter. Male and female, that doesn't matter. Family doesn't matter. And I won't have to answer for anything I do, so I can go ahead and self-destruct. And if I bring anybody down with me, I can bring everyone down with me. But who cares? Because they don't matter either. Nothing matters. But if there is a God, who created us, then the only thing that matters is to know what he desires of us and then to do it. Because we're created and he's the creator. Because there is a time when we will give an account at the end for everything we've done. And the only way this life has meaning if there is, if there is a God who gave it meaning. So we can't ever live as if our actions don't matter. They do. And they do more than we think. Life is all about pleasing God. That's really what the fear of God really means. It just means that I want and I have a strong desire. I know he's with me and I just want to please him. I love him. I honor him. He's my creator. I just want to do what pleases God. I heard about the true testimony of a, a woman from the 60s. She grew up and she was living the hippie lifestyle. And she 
at the time had two bumper stickers on her car. One was a feminist message and the other was Jesus is the reason for the season, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Basically a secular bumper sticker and a Christian bumper sticker. And, and one day, she came out of the store and someone had written a note and left it on her windshield under the wiper. And she took that note and she said, I was never the same after that day and reading that note. The note had one word on it. And it was, decide. <laughs> decide. She knew, and when she opened that paper, she knew, I've been sitting on the fence. And somehow God used that. It prompted her to go to church. Then she got saved. And then she got serious about the Lord. Decide. Decide. We don't have time to live for something or someone else. Remember your creator in the days of your youth until those days come when it's going to be hard and then life's going to be done. We don't have time to read philosophy books our whole life. We need to just decide and do. This is where the search for meaning ends. The search for meaning. It ends here at, at our creator. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.